Hello, and welcome to The Church's Radical Reform. My name is Christopher Lamb. This is a podcast series exploring reform and renewal efforts inside the Catholic Church. The October 2023 Synod Assembly is over, and it ended with a strong consensus among those who attended that the synodal method, listening and discerning together, is the way forward for the Church. There were some who came to the Synod as sceptics, but were converted by the new process. That is a big success. A document summarising the discussions made a series of proposals for change, including an expanded role for women, an overhaul of training programmes for priests, the possibility of new church laws, appraisals for bishops, and, crucially, an acceptance that the church's understanding of sexuality has not kept up with scientific developments. But what does it all mean? And what will happen next? The major challenge facing the Synod is how it should be implemented at the local level. It's all well and good to have a Synod Assembly in Rome that's a success. But what happens at the parishes? What happens in the diocese? In this interview, I talk once again to Miriam Violence. She had spoken to me for an earlier episode about the Synod process. During the Synod Assembly in October 2023, Miriam was inside the Synod Hall, not as a voting delegate, but as an expert advisor. She shared with me her impressions about what went on, the steps for reform that need to be taken, and the big questions that have to be addressed. Well, Miriam Violence, thank you very much for joining me. Uh, the Synod 2023 has come to a conclusion. Um, can you tell me a bit about what your role was in the Synod Assembly? Well, thank you very much for having this conversation with you. It's always a pleasure. I was appointed in 2021 to be on the steering committee for the Synod, which means I was involved in the drafting of the preparatory document. Then I was involved in reading all the reports from around the world, the so-called Frascati documents. And then I was involved in drafting the documents that was produced in as a result of the meeting in Prague, so the European meeting, and now I was involved as an um, as an expert. And the task of the experts was really to read very carefully the reports that were coming from the floor, analyze them. Where is there a convergence? Where is where are there maybe tensions? What do the people see as uh, issues that need to be further researched? And what can be stepped forward? And what was it like inside the Synod Hall? I mean, we saw how different it looked in terms of the round tables and very different uh, compared to other synods. What was it like inside there? For me, it was really exciting because, um, as I just said, we had had continental meetings. And one of the gifts was the Asian gift of round tables. There was an awareness that a round table produces a very different conversation than a square table where you also have always have to see who, who is going to sit at the head of the table. At the round table, everybody is, so to speak, equal. And they used the specific methods that was also new in the way the Catholic Church interacts. It was not a preaching method, it was not a, a teaching method, but it was a listening method. Listening to what is the Spirit saying to the Church and then listening to each person at the table. And each person at the table was given the same amount of time. 
This is well, might sound a little bit like, is that so important? Well, it is. If you meet with people from so many different cultures, where uh, maybe it's a bit of a stereotype, but where maybe an Asian woman would be more reluctant to speak than, let's say, um, a person from the Western world who is very eager, and if that person is a cardinal, um, there would be inequality already by the time taken to speak. You talk about the listing method. This is really quite a significant shift. It's a tremendous shift. And you could see the round tables in the room. The room itself is a, an, a huge hall within the walls of the Vatican, so to speak. And I, I felt that you could really breathe in this hall. So people had a wider perspective. And what I also liked was there were four different teams. It was a major introduction and then three different teams, communal participation and mission. And for each team, the group composition changed. This was new in the Senate. In the past, people were stuck for four weeks, so to speak, in one group. And now every time they change. And so many bishops um, have said to me, this is so new, but it's so wonderful that in such a short time, you get to know so many people from around the globe. And it makes us aware that we are really a church that is worldwide engaged. We've had the synthesis document of the discussions that took place. The initial reaction has been there isn't anything that explosive or dramatic in the document. But we're also hearing from people that actually a close reading of it says that there are some very significant things. What have your impressions been? And what do you think is the most important thing coming out from the document? I think the most important thing from the whole document is that we were able to bring all the voices from around the world in one document. That I think is a major challenge. We had to cross um, five languages, but we have to realize that most of the people in the room did not speak in their mother tongue. So we had to, to, to pass um, cultures, we had to pass language barriers, we had to pass um, people who are ordained, people who are lay. And for all these people then to come together, and we have seen this pattern now over the past few years, there is a great convergence in this walking together, but it requires a very careful listening and not to begin to speak. I was really touched when a colleague of mine said, she told me that she had said to a bishop, the question is ultimately not whether your point is in the document. The question is whether the point or the concerns of the other person is sufficiently expressed in this document. And if you can therefore come to a document, and the point is not to write a paper, the point is not to write a document, but to come to a common understanding of what the church is about and how we want to interact with each other, how we want to find answers to difficult questions, how we want to be a missionary church, if you can do that, Together, I think that um, in itself is a unique achievement and is um, a reason for great hope. Now, obviously, it's still at the halfway stage. Now, the document makes a strong call for uh, women to be great, given a greater role in decision-making, co-responsibility in the church. It also calls for further study uh, for uh, looking at women deacons. How significant do you think that, that those uh, parts of the document are? I think the, the document itself was, or again, the meeting, let's not speak about the document, the meeting itself was concerned to address that everybody is being heard, is being listened to, and that we are all part of the church, that we all work and walk together. 
I think that was the first point. The second point was already from the continental meetings, how do we hold truth and love together? How do we, how do how does that go together? How can we move forward? Then we see that there are a number of topics um, indeed relevant. So the question of what is the role of women in our church? How can we increase this? So let's just focus maybe on that. So the role of the women in the church, there was a general agreement. We have to attend to this question. Um, there was a great agreement, and the women do make up the larger portion uh, of active participants in the life of the church. And then there comes a struggle, because we all come from different cultures and from different uh, backgrounds. How does that unfold in real life on the grounds? So um, the document is saying, we have to look into new ministries, ministries for the laity, in virtue of being baptized. And now I'm a canon lawyer. I'm not only a theologian, but also a canon lawyer. And from a canonical perspective, I would say many of the issues there um, deal with men, lay men, equally as uh, with lay women. It's not only um, new ministries for women, but also for lay men. Among the issues mentioned is, for example, um, also preaching in liturgies. Uh, what, how can we advance that? Now, with regard to the, the, the deacon, and the document is reporting what is the status of the conversation at the moment. So some are saying, this is for us unthinkable. Others are saying, I think we should go back to the tradition of the church and see and open this question anew. Um, some would see this as a break with traditions. Others would say, well, there is a way of understanding how tradition develops. So there's um, different views on this, and the document ultimately, and this was, was then agreed upon, um, is saying we should go take up this question, study it anew, um, in light of the studies that already have been done. And the document is even saying it would be nice if there would be a, a conclusion next year. Those who will look into that will have to do that in light of what is already there. So there was also a point we shouldn't begin from scratch as if there is nothing. At the same time, it was also said, there are other studies available and we should look at them as well. People who want to see the church adopt a different approach and ministry to LGBT Catholics, some have expressed disappointment that the phrase LGBT is not mentioned in the document and they, there is uh, some concern about that. But there is mention of polygamy. Does this show that the concerns of Africa, the global south, have won the day here. I don't think there are no winners or losers in this. Um, I think this was a genuine way of, of trying to understand where we are at. Um, very often, actually, just another subject maybe in the middle, but very often there was a reference made to Vatican II it, saying this is a very important stage in, in the reception of the Second Vatican Council. The Second Vatican Council, Karl Rahner, German theologian, said it was for the first time the World Church was meeting. But so many of the bishops were missionary bishops from the Western world in Africa, in Asia, in South America. Now, all these bishops were born over there. They were raised over there. They had the education there or in other parts of the world. And what we are seeing is that um, many of these countries are um, also struggling with questions of colonialization, decolonialization. What does that really mean? What is our identity? And um, I think they are trying to find out where are we in all these issues? What is our identity? So that, I think, is playing into these questions as well. At the same time, I think it was very important um, that we find a language to speak about um, 
uh, questions of homosexuality, that is acceptable to all so that it would not, through a vote, not appear in the document at all. And I think uh, the question or the, the language that is used, that um, issues that are relating to matters of identity and sexuality is expressing the question of LGBTQ people in the church, um, but in a way that is acceptable for everybody. And it does say that the church's own anthropology or understanding of the human person with regards to sexuality has not taken in enough human experience and the sciences. So it is seemed to be saying, well, there could be a, a, a looking at that again, potentially. Uh, yes, I think indeed that the question of uh, anthropology, the, uh, but that too, how we have developed that, how we see that, is that only with a Western anthropology, is that only what, how, how do we actually do that? Um, I think that that will be one of the challenges we have. For me, this whole Senate shows that it is not Europe anymore which determines where the church is at. We, we are trying to fight in our church a new understanding of also how to interact with other parts of the world. Um, and Europe is one part of that world, but it's not the dominant part and we translate it to the others. So this is, I think, a major challenge. On when we all sit at that round table of seven chairs, of seven continental meetings, um, that's a different conversation than Europe sitting at the head of the table and the others in a position to listen and to receive. The document also says that there should be a study of canon law, potentially a revision of the of the church's law. You're a canon lawyer. How important is it to ensure that this synodal experience is implemented at the local level? And that how can canon law help that? Because we have seen bishops and other church leaders not be involved in the synod, ignore it, resist it. Can canon law help ensure pastoral councils that they are obligatory, as the document says. How important is the law here? There are two aspects to this. On the one hand, you need laws to implement and to secure that what you have agreed on will indeed be implemented. Um, on the other hand, laws alone will be insufficient. So you can have a body, and people were reporting on that. A presbyteral council, for example, is obligatory. But some bishops only convoke it once a year, and they basically inform the priest what they have decided, which means the bishop in such a case has, does not appreciate what's behind that. So we have to have a conversion in the sense of all have then to participate in, in that um, exercising of responsibility. If you have, for example, parish pastoral councils and diocesan pastoral councils, then you can also, that would then also be as obligatory, a right of the faithful to participate. So it's then not only at does the bishop like this, but it takes two to tango. And the, the faithful could then say, you have to. Um, so for the presbyteral council, for example, I can have a very simple example that I really like. The presbyteral council must be heard when you have a reconfiguration of parishes. But the, the local parish council doesn't have to be heard. And uh, the parish and the diocesan pastoral council doesn't have to be heard. Now, these would be institutions where I, but this is my private opinion, would say, I think the law could make a provision that a bishop, before he rearranges the parishes, must hear these bodies as well, because these are the people directly affected by it. And sometimes these people have very important insights 
I remember in, in a parish where I used to live, uh, the bishop had decided to reconfigure it with another, but he was not aware that two neighborhoods were not connected by public transportation because the bishop always came by car. So, so the people were saying, we cannot even meet with each other because we have to go to the center of the city in order to go to the other section of the city. So then on the basis of the protest of the people, um, the bishop reconfigured it in a different way. So you look then in conversation with people, you discover where do they do their shopping, where do they go to the movie theaters, where do they go to the doctors, the hospitals. And these are very different aspects to be taken into consideration. It strikes me that you know, whilst the synod here in Rome has been a very rich experience of synodality, it is about how to break it out of just a small group in the church experience in the synod and making sure that it happens at the local level. That is going to be a, indeed a major challenge. How can we bring about this, um, this experience? And I would say, um, why don't parishes, I mean, this is the most crucial group of people. Why in the parishes does try to meet with people who we otherwise do not meet? Um, I've been thinking myself, how would it be if we in the parishes not only celebrate the Eucharist, but maybe would go on a pilgrimage, a pilgrimage not too far where everybody can go um, and where people walk, because as you are walking, you get into a conversation and you meet people with whom you otherwise might not speak. If you go to a parish hall, you sit again with the people you already know. So um, I think that would be one way, and then to invite people to such a walk who otherwise would not participate in our communities. Looking ahead to the next 11 months, ahead of the next Synod Assembly in October 24, what do you think is going to happen? Are we going to see big disagreements, or are we going to see a, a hive of activity commissions, studies, how do you think it's going to play out? Well, some of the bishops, uh, also in the place where I'm staying here in Rome, have said, oh, maybe Rome can tell us what to do. And my reaction was, I think that time is over. Um, how could Rome say what you have to do in the inner city of London and in the inner city of Manila um, or in the countryside of Alaska at the same time? So I think it is. this is part of the process, this decentralization to take up your own responsibility and to shape that um, in the context where you live. And the structure of the Synod, uh, which include for the first time lay people voting, women included in that, um, how significant is this new structure? Because it is very new. Some bishops have questioned the authority of this structure. How do you respond to that? I was really um, pleased to see the following. So for the votes, we needed a two-third majority. And I thought to myself, suppose it is two-third or just over two-third, and if you would deduct the non-bishops from their votes, some might say, oh, you see, this is, this is the non-bishops who have decided. But it was actually, with the exception for one article, and I don't remember now exactly which one it was, um, all the others had the majority, the two-third majority of the bishops alone. So we see something very beautiful, theologically also very beautiful. It says in the Second Vatican Council that the census fidei fidelio is, is really this infallibility of the church comes 
when from the faithful to the last bishops, they all agree. If you look at the voting results, that they can be found on the internet um, for each paragraph, for each section. Um, if you will see that sometimes there were five or six people out of, well, I, I don't know exactly, 346 or 48 or so people um, who might not have agreed. Well, that is not really, that's not even 2%. So if you have such a consensus, that means that the people of God, together with the bishops, from around the world, from all these different cultures and different ages, different status in, in life, marrieds, grandmothers, uh, um, bishops, uh, priests, deacons. Um, I mean, that was for me, that was a really overwhelming outcome. And finally, the October 2024 Synod, that's going to produce a document that's going to have more authority, if you like, is going to be probably more firm in terms of where things will be going. Is that how you see it? I just hope it's not just going to produce a document. I just hope it's really going to to give an impetus to the church to bring more life, um, especially for us in the Western world, um, so that we feel encouraged to go out and to attend to those in need um, and that we um, can participate also in the, in the public domain. I think that's another issue. We should not just close ourselves in, but that we engage in sciences, in development, um, so that we can be Christians active in where we live. Well, Miriam, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. This is a podcast sponsored by the Centre for Catholic Studies at the University of Durham in partnership with Tablet. You can find us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.